over the last three to five years. Part of financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Thursday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. Weak U.S. economic data sends stocks in the U.S. dollar lower. Shares in Kraft Foods surged 35% in New York on news of a merger with Heinz. And Fitch ratings raises the alarm bells about China's uh, shadow banking system. So these are brands that I liked 30 plus years ago and I like them today. That's Warren Buffett. Uh, that's your teaser for this morning. He's talking about craft products like uh, Philadelphia cream cheese and Oscar Mayer sausages. Do you eat these foods and are you drinking the Kool-Aid? Because uh, Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway and private equity firm 3G Group most certainly are. We'll look at uh, the markets this morning and we'll talk about uh, this particular M&A deal, which, is, uh, which creates one of the world's largest food groups. And it's result season for Chinese banks, but how badly are they being affected by the slowdown in China property? We'll ask BlackRock Real Estate's John Saunders. And then our last guest of the morning is Tim Ui of Asia Pulp and Paper, and he joins us to talk about the impact of sustainable packaging. Peter Lewis is our regular Thursday guest host. Good morning, Peter. Good morning, Vanita. So M&A deals are back with a bang. Do you think that Kraft and Heinz will make for a happy marriage? I think they probably will, especially when Warren Buffett is involved. And this this is classic uh, Warren Buffett. He loves buying companies with strong brand names that have been around for a long time, like Gillette, like Coca-Cola, and are likely to be around for a long time in the future. And actually, I think this is also about um, improving the global um, craft brand because craft is really um, you know a, a US consumer group a, a lot of its sales come from the US whereas Heinz is much more um, global and has source, has much more of its sales globally so the merger of the two is actually going to be particularly good for craft I think when you say this is classic Warren Buffett what part actually buying the brands or the merger I think well I think that this deal is technically sort of quite uh, quite unusual and, it, and it's sort of almost only Warren Buffett that could come up with this type of um, deal that involves, you know, 3G Group sort of, in effect, injecting money into Heinz, which in turn then goes and buys um, sort of Kraft. And the, and the Kraft stakeholders will keep uh, 49% of the new company and the Heinz shareholders will own the other 51%. All right, so let's look at that a little bit more. Shares of uh, the U.S. food company Kraft, which is the manufacturer of salad dressing and Kool-Aid, rose 35% in New York trading following this announcement that it would merge with H.J. Heinz to create the Kraft Heinz Company. The combined company will have a value in excess of $100 billion, making it one of the largest consumer companies in the world. And Heinz is owned by uh, the private equity group 3G and of course, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. The 3G Group acquired uh, ketchup maker Heinz two years ago and Burger King back in 2010. And as part of the deal, a special dividend payment to Kraft shareholders of approximately $10 billion is being funded by Berkshire Hathaway and 3G. Here's Chairman Warren Buffett. We will be in this stock 
forever. Uh, you know, this this is a business with us. It's not really a stock, and it's a company that we'll own twenty six and a fraction percent of. Uh, so it's where it's where the new Kraft Heinz uh, company is ten, twenty, fifty years from now that counts to Berkshire Hathaway. And and you know, I like the brands, and I I, I like the management a whole lot, and uh, I think we'll do fine over time. But that you know, we will see. You know how much uh, Philadelphia cream cheese and Oscar Mayer hot dogs and and uh, a whole host of other products people are eating ten or twenty or thirty years ago. But I first I first went into General Foods on behalf of Berkshire Hathaway in the early 1980s. I think maybe we were the largest shareholder. Berkshire Hathaway was the largest shareholder of General Foods, and these these brands of craft, uh, a lot of them come out of that General Foods holding. So these are brands that. I liked 30 plus years ago, and I like them today. You know, I think uh, the first part of what he said, Peter, really hits the nail on the head because he said this is not simply a stock, you know, a chair that we hold. I mean, this is actually a business, and you know that's why he takes such interest in babysitting them, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. And he very, very rarely sells the stakes in his companies. He holds them for not just years, for decades, for decades uh, sometimes. And it's very rare also that he actually gets it wrong. I mean, probably his only recent mistake that I can maybe think of was Tesco's, which he did go and disinvest himself of. But in general, he, he sticks with these stakes for a long time. And the reason why he works with 3G is that unlike most private um, sort of equity firms, they tend to hang around for a long time in their companies as well. So it's a good sort of partnership between uh, Berkshire Hathaway and 3G. Yeah, it goes to show that sort of holding equity is a long-term game. Absolutely. Right? Well, Sanford Bernstein analyst Alexia Howard says that this deal shows that the U.S food industry is long overdue a consolidation. This is just a reflection of the bigger structural changes going on in the U.S. food industry at the moment. Um, 3G obviously bought Heinz uh, a little over two years ago. Um, the uh, the acquisition of Kraft uh, this morning to merge with that. Clearly the special dividend is the big upside for the, uh, the Kraft shareholders here. The, the rest of it is really just a merger of two entities and um, the, uh, um, the, the relative EBITDA of the companies are, uh, are what we need to look at here. It's obviously a good thing for, for craft shareholders. The whole question um, in terms of where the company was going has been up in the air since late December with the uh, change of right. CEO and John Cahill coming in. Um, but uh, it really does show that uh, 3G believes there's a lot of cost to come out of the, uh, the whole um, area of U.S. food. Smead Capital Chief Investment Officer Bill Smead thinks that low interest rates are a motivation behind this deal. It's certainly appealing for a company like Berkshire Hathaway uh, that earns almost no money on their cash. If they can get a deal done with strong partners and they can project themselves to make uh, 8 or 10% return over 10 years, just think that's nirvana compared to the bond market. It's nirvana mm -hmm. compared yeah. to what else they could do with their money. Nirvana compared to the bond market. I like that. <laughs> U.S. February uh, durable goods orders fell a, su a surprising 1.4%. Now, this was worse than analysts' uh, expectations of a 0.2% rise. The previous month's gain of 2.8% was revised down to just 2%, and this data was another in a string of recent economic numbers that have missed expectations, suggesting that the world's largest economy is slowing. Combined with the Fed's more dovish-than-expected call at its last policy meeting, expectations of an interest rate rise this summer are being tempered. Smead Capital CEO Bill Smead explains why the durable goods number is important. 
the most important thing to durable goods is the millennials that you were talking about before, because the durable goods go in the house after it's purchased. Uh, the the you get married, you have children, and then you need an uh, automobile, which is a durable good, and then you you move into the house and you need appliances, and those are durable goods. So uh, usually the big swings in the durable goods numbers have to do with airplane deliveries. So so uh, those are the kinds of things that swing the durable goods orders. This- the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 1.6%, falling 292 points to close at 17,718. The S&P 500 tumbled 30 points to close at 2061, and a sell-off in biotech and chip companies sent the Nasdaq down almost 2.5% to 4,876. Shares of biotech companies have fallen 12% in the past three days. In currency markets, the U.S. dollar continued its recent slide. The euro, which nine days ago touched a 12-year low of 1.04, is now trading just shy of 1.10 after reaching 1.11 earlier in the day. Oppenheimer Fund's CIO Krishna Mimani explains what's behind today's sell-off. Well, we have seen this movie before. The same thing happened last year as well. That is, uh, we entered the year thinking growth is going to be spectacular. It didn't turn out to be that way, perhaps because of weather last year, perhaps because of weather this year as well. Uh, and uh, stocks had run up in anticipation of that growth outlook, and we will correct. And then once uh, things stabilize and growth comes back, we'll probably climb back up again like last year. And, and growth and momentum had done quite well over the last few months. So I think uh, it's part of the correction in those specific sectors is perhaps because of uh, because of that run. Peter, what's your take on the sell-off? Well, I think it's two things. I think, first of all, it's a dawning realisation that the US economy is slowing down. Um, and we've seen a whole series of economic data recently come out that have missed expectations. In fact, nearly everything apart from the jobs number has missed. Retail sales, manufacturing data, housing starts, and now we have this durable goods um, sort of order. And then secondly, earnings are also turning negative as well for, for Q1. And, and the markets, which is already pretty expensive. If it's going to go up from here, it now means that that multiple when earnings are declining has got to expand sort of even more. So the, the warning signs have, have been there for a while. It's a bit like um, Wiley Coyote chasing the roadrunner. You see all the signs <laughs> that the end of the road is there and you ignore them until you fall off the end of the cliff. All right. The US dollar is currently trading at 119 yen and a one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 53 cents and also one US dollar and 48 cents. Fitch ratings have criticized Beijing's efforts to improve China's shadow banking system. It described monitoring and risk disclosure as inadequate. Fitch notes that off-balance sheet financing, including wealth management products within the financial sector, now accounts for 18% of total loan growth, and this compares to just 2% a decade ago. Shadow loans are typically made to high-risk borrowers with poor credit ratings and thus pose a significantly higher risk to financial institutions. David Marshall is a senior analyst for Asia-Pacific Financials at Credit Sites, and he expects non-performing loans in the sector to rise. We're expecting to see that the NPLs to rise. As she said, it's still in the 1% range. It isn't really that, uh, that problematic. Of course, everybody's worried about how bad it could be, what we're about the hidden NPLs, especially how bad it could be if the economy slows. Um, no one knows for sure. My colleague was recently talking to some of the big Chinese banks, and I think you know, some of them did say, interestingly, that they couldn't imagine in the worst case the NPL ratio going beyond 3%. 
And maybe it's a little cynical, but my rule of thumb as a bank analyst is you can take the managed number and maybe double it. Um, but suppose they did get to 6%. I mean, you know, that would be manageable for these big Chinese banks over a couple of years. Of course, they'd have to devote quite a bit of their earnings to you know, dealing with the NPL problem. Uh, but they could manage it. But I don't think we're going to see that kind of number anytime soon, partly because it's going to be a managed process, you know, like the local government debt, for example. The Agricultural Bank of China, the country's third largest bank, reported earlier this week its first drop in profits in three years dragged down by non-performing loans. The country's two biggest lenders, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China and the China Construction Bank, report their results today and tomorrow, respectively. But has all the bad news about Chinese banks now been baked into the share price? Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Godex Penjing Asset Management, William Ma, gives us his view. I believe um, a lot of um, the negative news has been pricing already, and actually there are some forgotten or less focused aspect of um, the market is not being widely discussed. For example, potentially that uh, um, there are potential that the, the government would uh, allow the local uh, banks and insurance company and brokers to take into the potential 401k market. I think that creates some potential new earning stream for the asset management firm, the banks, and also the, the brokers. One of the reasons, of course, for the increase in uh, NPLs at Chinese banks has been the decline in property prices. There have been uh, eight consecutive month-on-month falls for new home prices on the mainland uh, in uh, 70 of its most important cities. Let's look uh, more deeply at China's real estate market now with John Saunders, who is the head of APAC at BlackRock Real Estate. Good morning, John. Good morning. How are you? Great. Welcome back to Money for Nothing. Thank you. John, uh, is there now, you know, there is now, I should say, a chorus of voices, you know, predicting a housing crisis in China as the bubble bursts. What do you think? Is the chorus right or wrong? Look, I think uh, we've we've been saying for a while, obviously, you know, my role within BlackRock is to do direct investment in physical real estate. So we see quite a wide swathe of, of the market. We felt for quite some time that there has been a lot of overlending and a lot of overlending in real estate. And so, of course, ironically for us, that that provides some opportunities um, uh, for us to do what what we want to do. But I I think like all these things, it's taken a very long while, it seems, for people to really focus on the excessive lending. But now people are focused on it and all the bad news is tumbling out one after another. I think the sort of prediction of the imminent collapse of the Chinese housing market, I think, frankly, is much overdone. I think there are some problems and there are some significant problems which will take a little while to work through and will lead to lower pricing. But this thing will eventually reach bottom and it will recover. So the you know, Chinese families last year, this, despite all the, the, the talk of gloom and doom, they bought around 10 million new homes in 2014. That's, that's uh, an astonishing amount. And, and you would think then that that should mean that developers ought to be very profitable, certainly the ones in that part of the sector. Well, I suppose it's a relative thing. 10 million homes is a very large amount of homes to sell. But of course, when you've got a country of sort of, you know, well over a billion people, um, the key here is that you know, the volumes have fallen roughly 10%. So if you have a lot of leverage on your balance sheet and you have an expectation of selling, you know, significantly more homes than you do and your balance sheet is leveraged, that negative 10% is very, very painful for you, even though as a collective group you 
you did sell 10 million homes, which is a lot of units. But presumably the homeowners themselves are, are doing okay, aren't they? Because although prices have been declining for the last nine months, the, the previous nine years they've seen pretty strong sort of price appreciation. So is it, is it just only people who would have bought most recently that are sort of underwater? And, and in general, the, the homeowner there is, is, is looking pretty comfortable? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and that tends to be the case in most, uh, uh, you know, most housing market corrections. It's unfortunately the people who came in at the end are the people who face negative equity. Now, of course, it depends how long and for how long and how sharply um, those numbers decline. But you're right; you've been seeing year on year minus five percent, um, and you know, for years you've been seeing sort of five, seven, ten percent increases. That's why we are concerned about the market but why we see it, if you like, as an opportunity rather than a huge catastrophe. Yeah, now, John, you say that this uh, repricing that's going on is, is very sensible, uh, very sensible repricing of the market and offers some good opportunities. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, I mean, we tend to focus quite heavily. We, we are prepared to look at, at residential, but our natural focus tends to be um, on commercial. So we look quite a bit at uh, office and retail. Um, we're active in some of the major cities. We're also active in some of the, uh, you know, tier two cities, particularly in retail. And I think the big opportunity really at the moment is there because of the fact that a lot of developers have taken on a lot of projects, um, there isn't the cash flow and there isn't the lending to support all of them. So one of our roles is to uh, to, to go in, if you like, and, and, and bridge finance, help finance these things to completion by taking a sort of joint venture and an active role in the, uh, in the project. So what are some of these uh, second-tier cities? Where do you see value, you know, outside of Shanghai and Beijing? Yeah, I, I may not sort of give the whole playbook away over the radio, but um, <laughs> I mean, we've done we've done a fair bit in Chengdu, for example. Um, you know, uh, tier two city, um, but a tier two city of uh, over nine million people. Um, it's been very successful for us. There's a, a good uh, young middle class who like to spend. And that's generally a good thing if you own a shopping centre. Um, so, you know, some of those tier two cities uh, can be very, very attractive. And, John, can you tell us what really is the difference between, you know, the retail, residential and commercial sectors in terms of price appreciation? I, I think relative price appreciation is the game here and it depends where you are in the, in, in, you know, in, in the relative uh, time clock, if you like. Um, I think the retail, uh, you know, the retail market has been very solid and very steady um, and actually has been remarkably resilient in this downturn. The one that's been hurt the most is residential. Why? Because prices are falling, volumes are falling, and there's a huge amount of overbuilding. Um, and, and it's a commoditized uh, market. And so that's why that now is starting to look like one of the interesting opportunities. All right, John, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is John Saunders, and he is the head of Asia Pacific at BlackRock Real Estate. The Nikkei is uh, down 140 points or seven-tenths of a percent to 19,605. And Australia's ASX index is down 1% to 5,867. Travellers heading for the mainland during the holidays are reminded to avoid crossing the boundary at peak hours and should plan their journeys in advance. Please also consider using rail services. 
those using other public transport, such as shuttle buses or other cross-boundary coach services terminating at Huanggang Port in Shenzhen, or local public transport services calling at Lokmachau Spur Line or Shenzhen Bay are also reminded to avoid traveling at peak hours. The time is now 8.23 p.m. and a.m. Sorry, I'm already putting us forward into the evening. Many um, global consumer companies have uh, recently changed their packaging to be more environmentally friendly. And companies such as Kraft Foods, Nestle, Unilever and Carrefour have all vowed to stop buying from companies that destroy the rainforest. Our last guest this morning is Tim Ui from Asia Pulp and Paper, which was one of the companies that has been dropped. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Tim, um, you know, Kraft is certainly in the news this morning with, you know, given its merger with Heinz. Yeah. Uh, I have to start out by asking about Kraft Foods because Asia Pulp and Paper used to provide packaging for Kraft Foods until 2011. Why did they cancel? No, actually, they have some concern about the uh, uh, environmental issue, but uh because uh, a lot of international, uh, multinational company, they are really concerned of, on the uh, sustainable and um, environmental issue. But after this, that um, we work together with a lot of uh, NGOs, and we do have a very long discussion and have a project with the um, our stakeholder. So finally, uh, started from two thousand thirteen. We have uh, set up a sustainable uh, business model. You know that uh, APP, we are the fully integrated pulp and paper industry. So we have more than 1 million hectares plantation. But that's in Indonesia and China. So isn't it true that, you know, the rainforest is still being destroyed? Of course, no, because uh, in last year's, uh, our chairmen have attended the United Nations uh, Climate Summit. We are the only one plantation, pulp and paper company who have committed zero disforestation and we are the only endorser for this uh, climate action. How have you committed um, if, you know, you're still essentially chopping down trees in Indonesia? No, we are not chopping not. down any trees because we have committed zero disforestation. Okay. So uh, our plantation actually is under the full assessment from the uh, TFT. And we do work together with the Rainforest Alliance. So, uh, because now the, the consumer are really trust the certification. So, so what do the consumers ex- in Hong Kong expect from you in terms of environmental protection and sustainable packaging, um, sort of nowadays? Yeah, as I mentioned, that uh, nowadays the consumer trust certifications. So basically, they prefer the, the company or the supplier have a very clear environmental uh, advantage, So, which is including um, the chains of custody. And, and do Hong Kong consumers, I mean, Hong Kong is not the most environmentally friendly city in the world. Do Hong Kong consumers care? Are, are, they, you know, are, 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 are they indicating that they're willing to change their behavior a little bit? I think uh, Hong Kong consumers need more exposure or education in terms of uh, sustainable uh, issues. 
Okay, so uh, you know you're saying that they, the consumers really trust certification, and and that you, that's per- perfectly reasonable. But what is the certification actually telling us? I mean, how do the plantations work if you know they're still in these rainforests? Yeah, this is something that uh, Hong Kong consumer need to learn because uh, when you look at the uh, chains of custody, including uh, those uh, trust label, the eco eco labels in the products. Yeah, for example, PFC, FDA, but the most common uh, certification uh, there is uh, ISO. So um, all this uh, label is very important indication for uh, the consumer. I'm still not understanding, though, how uh, you've sort of turned it around on sustainability. Certifications, yes, but what do the certifications translate to? What are they actually telling us yeah, in terms is- of your your company operations. Yeah, as I mentioned that uh, our company is a fully integrated uh, plantation, pop and paper manufacturers. Uh, this is uh, very important for the traceability for the raw material, especially involved the wood fiber. So if you look at our production uh, uh, system, it means that you can trace the wood fiber came from which plantation. So this is a very important indication for the consumer. Peter, what do you think? Well, I, I think, you know, it, what, what's interesting to me is, you know, companies themselves, I mean, you know, clearly they believe, and, you know, we had a long list of them earlier that, you know, are, are sort of looking at this. They, they believe that they can absolutely enhance their brand value, I presume, by introducing sort of sustainable sort of packaging. And, and I presume they believe they can pass on some costs to their customers as well, which is what ultimately sort of drives it, isn't it? Uh, uh of course, yeah. But anyway, but this is very important social responsibility and uh, uh, to create a positive perception to the consumers, yeah, to improve the brand values to, uh, for the MNC. Tim, did you have a sort of sense of remorse this morning when you heard about the the news of the Kraft Heinz merger that you lost out on this big client? Uh, I think we we need to uh, face the, the such uh, issue from time to time. So, uh, this is not uh, something that really. Uh, new for me. <laughs> okay, so maybe you will work on getting them back now, since uh, sustainability yeah. is sounds like it's becoming your forte that you're working on. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we never stop to work hard and try to improve our um, our forest management system. That's why we have our forest uh, conservation policy and been launched uh, two years ago, and uh, we believe that. With a uh, well communication with our stakeholders and uh, NGOs, including the professionals, uh, TFT uh, forest management uh, assessment. So, pretty soon we can prove that we are we are the right choice for them. Okay, thank you for joining us this morning. I I hope uh, that's true, and you know, good luck with it. Uh, and. Hopefully we won't all be drinking the Kool-Aid, right? Uh, that is Tim Ui, and he is the Senior Vice President for Sales and Marketing uh, for the Far East Asia at uh, Asia Pulp and Paper. A quick look at the numbers now before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down 1% to 19,548. Australia's ASX index is down 1.3% to 5,861. And Seoul's Kospi down half a percent to 2,030. Gold is currently valued at $1,194 per ounce and Brent crude oil has crept up uh, 
0.02% to $56.47. Peter, parting thoughts? Well, uh, we're in the middle of bank reporting season in China, so we've got the two biggest ones coming up. We need to keep an eye on them, particularly these non-performing loans. We'll also tomorrow get the final reading of uh, US GDP for the last quarter. Shouldn't be too much of a change. What's going to be far more interesting is this, uh, this first quarter of this year and how that's going to look as we come to the end of this quarter. And uh, Peter, you will be discussing uh, the GDP numbers on your show tomorrow morning. Peter Lewis, who is our regular Thursday uh, guest host, will actually be presenting the show for the next couple of days as uh, I will be out of town. So um, happy Easter, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for joining us this morning. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be cloudy with one or two rain patches. The temperature right now is 17 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 80%. Now for the news with Samantha Butler. English Schools Foundation has announced it plans to raise fees for the next academic year by an average of 5.2%. Richard Pine reports. Annual fees for primary school students will go up to $78,700, up 460 from current levels. For secondary students in years 7 to 11, fees will rise to $110,600. Parents with children in years 12 and 13 will need to pay $116,200 a year. The fees for the Foundation's private independent schools, Discovery College and Renaissance College, and the four ESF international kindergartens will also increase. All the fee increases are subject to final approval by the Education Bureau. Saudi Arabia has begun military operations in Yemen in response to a request from President Abu 